series. We're going to start a new series dealing with a family called uh, The Family Tree. Some of you this morning, I realize, are in the throes even right now of raising a family. You have infants. You have preschool-age children. And you, frankly, you're exhausted. I get it. Some of you have elementary-age children, and you, you're exhausted too. And some of you have teenage children, and you're rapidly losing the will to live. <laughs> like you're thinking of buying a dog just so that someone likes you when you come home. Some of you are empty nesters, reintroducing yourselves to one another, trying to figure out what to do with the extra time that you now have on your hands. Some of you are grandparents. Uh, It's beginning to dawn on you as grandparents that the reason so many of your friends have moved to Florida is to escape being the free and on-demand babysitter 24-7 all the time. On the other hand, for some of you, raising a family isn't even really uh, on your radar yet. Uh, Perhaps one day, though, it will be. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're married. Maybe you're married but don't have plans to have kids. Maybe you're remarried, dealing with stepchildren. I think that whatever stage of life that you're in today, you're going to benefit from this new series, and I think you're going to find it to be extremely practical. We're going to talk about things like busyness, handling conflict, overprotecting your children, being overly critical of people in your family, anger, jealousy, and more. Topics that I think that you would agree are very practical. But, and this is very, very important to me, you will also find this series to be uniquely Christian, meaning that this will be more than just a bunch of good principles that anyone and everyone can apply. We want to show you in this series how the power of Christ uniquely affects the way that believers in Christ can do family. Okay? Now, just a word about why I named this series uh, The Family Tree. Most of us are aware, whether anyone has uh, done a formal family tree for you or not, most of us are Most of us have some awareness of our ancestry and our relationship to the people on our family tree. We might even have some awareness of how those people on our family tree have shaped us. Genetically, sure, they've shaped us for sure genetically, but they may have also even shaped you behaviorally in ways that you aren't even perhaps sure about. Even though most of us are aware that we have a genealogical family tree, most of us are not aware that we also have a spiritual family tree that has also shaped us and that has shaped our families as well, and that is shaping our family even today. Often, in terribly destructive ways that we're completely oblivious to. Now today is an introduction to this series. I want to I introduce you to this idea that you have a spiritual family tree. And to do that, uh, I, I'm going to need today to lay some theological groundwork that we'll build off of in the weeks to come. So to launch this series... Uh, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to please find the New Testament letter to the Colossians uh, in your New Testament. Uh, The book of Colossians in your New Testament, if you're a regular here, you know that uh, bringing your Bible, whatever whatever form, digital, hard copy, whatever, uh, that's really important so that you can follow along, you can make notes so that you can go back and retrace those later on. The letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul who uh, came to believe in Jesus through a supernatural revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul became a devout follower of Jesus Christ, often imprisoned for his faith in Christ. And in fact, this particular letter that he's writing to the Colossians uh, is written while he's in prison. Paul was a, a church planter. He was responsible for planting a great many of the early first century churches. And he was also really the primary person who worked out the implications 
of Christ's death and resurrection, and he wrote about those in the New Testament, in these letters to churches in the New Testament. Now, this particular letter to the Colossians has to do with a doctrinal heresy that is infiltrating this young church, okay? And we're going to begin reading uh, about this in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading at verse 8. And let me just go ahead and give you up front the idea uh, that I want to, uh, the first point that I want to make this morning. And here it is. It's this, that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. You've probably heard me say that in other sermons before. This is something that comes up frequently throughout Scripture. Ideas have consequences, verse 8. The Apostle Paul, writing to this church, this very young church, says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on uh, Christ. Now, when Paul says in that first line, See to it that no one takes you captive, that word captive is a word that means to kidnap you. Uh, or to enslave you. Now, of course, we're talking about intellectual and spiritual kidnapping and enslaving, not physical, but that's what the word means, to, to, to kidnap you or to enslave you. What is it that he's concerned about that is going to kidnap them spiritually, intellectually, or enslave them spiritually and intellectually? Well, he calls it, notice what he calls it here, he calls it hollow and deceptive philosophy. He's talking about false ideas about life. He's talking about false philosophies, about the meaning of life, about how best to live life. And I've said before, you've probably heard me say this before, that the primary form of spiritual warfare that the Bible describes comes in the form of false idea systems that govern the world in which we live. It's not the only form of spiritual warfare by any means, but it is perhaps the most powerful form of spiritual warfare. Why? Now, why are idea systems so powerful? Well, the reason is because once they take hold in us, we become aware, unaware that we even have them. It's, it's a little like operating system uh, software on your computer. You don't even know it's working, but those ideas are back there in, their, in your mind. Now, let me give you something. Let me, just, let me give you a really simple, really f- kind of funny, uh, innocent example of what I mean. Until seven and a half years ago, uh, my wife lived her whole life in a very large city. Uh, many of you know Dallas, Texas. When we first considered moving to Evansville, uh, it's been about seven and a half years ago now, we visited the area. And she was blown away. Get this now. She was blown. And I'm not making fun of her because let me tell you, my wife is one of the smartest people I know. She really is. But she just never experienced this. She was blown away by two lane highways. <laughs> she had never driven on or seen a two lane highway. And she was really worried about what would happen if we had a flat flat tire on a two-lane highway. What would you do, she asked. There's no shoulder to pull off on. Well, later that night as we were driving uh, along, uh, she asked, why are the roads here so dark at night? Why don't they have lights on them? Where she had lived her whole life, every highway, every street was lit up at night. Now, I know this is going to date me, but, I, I, but this sounds a little like the show Green Acres. Anyone remember uh, the show <laughs> Green Acres? That's what it really kind of sounds like a little bit, right? Until that point in her life, Amy had no awareness that she had a false idea running in her mind that all highways are at least four lanes and are all lit up at night by light. She didn't know that she had that false idea. She took for granted that that idea was a true idea because it was consistent with the world in which she lived. Now, that's an innocent example of a false idea, right? Like, nothing too terrible is going to happen if you have that false idea. 
But Paul says here that there are some ideas, there are some ideas that are hollow and deceptive, and in their deception, they're dangerous. Some philosophies that are hollow and deceptive, and in their deception, they are dangerous. Now, please, please, uh, don't knee-jerk here. Uh, Let's recognize that Paul thought in nuanced ways. He's not anti-philosophy. He's not against studying philosophy. That's a great and noble course of study, even if it might not be particularly employable today. It's still a great and noble course of study. But Paul does understand that there are some philosophies, there are some ideas that are deeply destructive, that take root in people's lives and that take root in whole cultures, and most of us are unaware of how deeply influenced we are by them. Many of these false ideas and philosophies, the ideas of men who've been dead hundreds of years, with the logical conclusions of their philosophies, uh, still very much alive, still being carried out in our culture. And so he wants these people to be aware, alert, on guard against this heretical religious philosophy that is infiltrating their young church. Now, uh, some of you are probably wondering at this point, uh, what, what in the world does any of this have to do with family? And it's a fair question, and I appreciate you asking it. See, you really didn't ask, I asked, but anyway. Uh, the answer to the question is that ideas have consequences. I mean, all ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. We can say it like this. What you believe affects the way you live. And as you're going to see, even how you treat your family. What you believe, the ideas that you have, affect the way you live, and even how you treat your family. What you believe about life, what you believe about the meaning of life, what you believe about God affects every aspect of your life, including the way that you treat your family. So Paul starts out in verse 8 with this concern about this false doctrine, and he reminds us that ideas have consequences, sometimes dangerous and sometimes destructive consequences. Okay, that's point one. Now, uh, where I want to move in the next section, uh, what I want to talk about today so I want to begin to explain now what I mean by the statement that you have not only a genealogical family tree, but also a spiritual family tree that has shaped you. Uh, you probably didn't know that you have a spiritual family tree. I want to begin to explain that now. Let me just say that there are only two spiritual family trees in the world. Only two. And I want to talk about the first one for a moment. The first one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Anyone, anyone remember this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Anyone remember this one? If you were here a few months ago for a series called Twisted, you'll remember that this was the tree from which God forbade Adam and Eve to eat from. And if you will remember prior to eating from that tree, everything in the world worked the way that the world was supposed to work. Adam and Eve actually walked and talked with God personally. Their, their, their whole lives revolved around him. He was the subject uh, of life for them. He was the object of life for them. He, he defined them. They knew who they were. They knew their identity only in relationship to him. But when they ate from that tree, everything changed. It wasn't, so please don't misunderstand, it wasn't that the, truth, it's, that, that the fruit itself was poisonous or something. This isn't like a fairy tale. No. Eating from that tree was an act of defiance against God that said, in effect, we don't need you. We don't need you to define what is right and wrong. 
We don't need you to define life for us. We want to live autonomously from you. And so they ate in defiance of God as their first act of autonomy. And what we see in the early chapters of the book of Genesis is that the world as God created it was suddenly turned upside down in every way. Adam and Eve were now what they wanted, autonomous beings, but they were lost in a frightening new world. One in which death soon became a reality, one in which people began to war with one another, one in which they were cut off from the sense of meaning and purpose and identity that they'd always had and that they'd always found in relationship to the God for whom they were created. You could say now that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has become, has become everyone's spiritual family tree. Every person born since Adam and Eve, our spiritual family tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Now what you need to understand, and this is how it relates to what Paul is talking about here, is that all religious and non-religious philosophy Uh, Philosophy is humanity's attempt to make sense of the upside-down world that we live in now. To make sense of this world that that we live in, in which we're cut off from our source of meaning and purpose and identity. And what comes out of these philosophies and religions are ideas, essentially, about how to get back what we lost at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the, the, the philosophies that Paul is concerned about, what he calls hollow and deceptive philosophies contain ideas about how to get all of that back without ever having to turn to God for help. Because above all, we want to believe that we can maintain autonomy from Him and have it all. So that's what Paul's really concerned about. These philosophies that say we can get it all back, but you, don't have, you really don't need God to get it all back. Now, now, I do need to say, to be sure, there are some philosophers like Nietzsche and, and more recently Camus... Uh, who, who came to the conclusion that life never had meaning. Uh, it never had meaning and, and that there is uh, no hope for meaning and therefore no reason to even live. Camus famously said there's only one really seriously, serious philosophical question and that is suicide. Now, I, I think you would agree with me that that is a dangerous philosophy. But not all philosophers are like that. Many religious and non-religious philosophers have said, well, we could get everything back that we lost uh, in the Garden of Eden. We could do it without God. And you see, that's what all religious and non-religious philosophy is. is the attempt to make sense of this upside-down world and get back what was lost in the Garden of Eden at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we don't know the exact nature of the idea, the philosophy that Paul is combating in the Colossian church. We know elements of it. But I want to tell you something. It doesn't really matter because Paul describes it as a philosophy. Notice what he says in verse 8 that depends on, here's what he says, human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. In other words, Christ isn't has anything to do with it. This is about human tradition and what he calls the elemental forces of the world. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by human tradition and the elemental forces of the world? Of the world. Well, he's referring to the religious and non religious philosophies that are determined to get back uh, what was lost of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and remain autonomous from God in doing so. And, and, and here's how I'm going to summarize them, okay? Here's how I'm going to summarize these philosophies. And uh, some of you, I know some of you have seen me use this, most of you, so many times that you're probably sick of it by now. 
Uh, but in 30 years of ministry, I've learned that when I think people are sick of hearing something, it's just about the point that they're beginning to understand it. Here's how you can summarize every religious and non-religious philosophy since the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here it is. This is what Paul means when he speaks about hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world. He means this. Believe plus obey equals salvation. That's what he's talking about. Believe plus obey equals salvation. That's, that's, that's religious and, and, and non-religious philosophy that attempts to get everything back that we lost in the Garden of Eden without ever having to turn to Christ. That's what he's talking about here. And this is how it's summarized. Believe plus obey equals salvation. Now listen to me. Every human tradition, every man-made religion, every human philosophy, idea about life and the meaning of life, believe it or not, they all work off of this simple equation. Now you see this in the religious philosophy that Paul is combating here. We don't, again, we don't know the exact nature of the philosophy, but we know elements of it. Skip down to verse 16. Paul says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Skip down to verse 18. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of, worship of angels disqualify you. Skip down to the middle of verse 20. Why, as though you still belong to this world, he's writing to these young Christians, do you still submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You could add, do not dance, don't go to movies, you know, all those things. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Now, whatever this, this specific religious philosophical, uh, philosophical heresy was that was infiltrating the Colossian church, what its proponents were saying were, were simply this, look, it's fine if you believe in Christ, okay, that's fine, but you've got to obey, you have to obey, you've got to live, you've got to perform according to the rules of the religion if you want to be saved. So it followed our equation, believe in Christ plus obey uh, the religious laws of Israel equals salvation. And Paul said, Paul said, don't let that take you captive because it's hollow and deceptive and it's based on nothing more than human tradition and the elemental forces of this world. Now, as, as I said a moment ago, you've got to understand that this equation is the basis for every man-made religion and every human philosophy. Let me show you what I mean. Here's a non-religious idea, all right? Here's one. Money makes you happy. Well, let's run it through our equation, and let's see if it fits. Believe in the power of money to make you happy, plus obey, follow the rules of making money, investing money, saving money, okay? and you will be saved from unhappiness due to poverty. Does that work? Sure, it works. Here's another one. Individualism. Individualism says there's no God, so live for yourself and what makes you happy. Well, let's try it out. We'll see if it works. Believe in the power of individualism as a way of life, plus obey. Demand your rights conform to no other standards of right and wrong than your own, and you will be saved from the futility of collectivism or religion. Now, let's try this with a man-made religious philosophy. Let's try it, say, with Buddhism. And, and, and I recognize that Buddhism has uh, many branches, but let's sort of generalize here for a moment. Uh, believe 
in the teachings of Buddha, plus obey the Noble Eightfold Path, and you will be, sa- and you will be saved. Salvation, which they call it nirvana, perfect peace, happiness, release from the cycle of uh, repeated uh, rebirth. Does it work? Yeah, it works. That's the equation. Now, we could go on and on, but you get my point. What all human religious and non-religious philosophies and ideas have in common, whether they're Eastern or Western, B.C. or A.D., ancient or modern, religious or non-religious, all of them have this idea in common. Make note of this, because this might be the most important thing that you ever hear in any church ever. And I mean that sincerely. What they all have in common is this. Self-justification through performance. That's what they all have in common. Every human philosophy, uh, every man-made religion, they all have in common self-justification through performance. Do you see that in here? Now, see, some of them posit some kind of God, uh, but none of them really depend on him. All of them demand that whether there's a God or not, you you can't just believe in the God. You must self-justify. You must prove yourself. You must prove your worthiness for salvation by living up to the code of the particular religion or philosophical idea to which you subscribe. In other words, you're not worthy. You're not worthy for salvation until you have proven your worth. Self-justification through performance is the common idea of all human religious and non-religious philosophy. Now, why? Why is that the common idea of all of those, whether they're Eastern or Western, B.C., A.D., ancient, modern, religious? Not, why is that the common idea? Because this is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, autonomy from God. We can make life work without God. We can prove ourselves without God. We don't need him. We can get back all that was lost without having to have God tell us how to do it. We can get all of the meaning, all the purpose, all of the sense of identity that we once had without having to bow our knee to God. That's what Paul is referring to when he refers to hollow and deceptive philosophy based on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world. It comes from the spiritual family tree of the knowledge of good and evil where Adam and Eve first declared their autonomy from God and the world was turned upside down. Now, goodness, you say. What in the world does that have to do with family? Okay, watch this now. There's this other passage of Scripture in, what, in which Paul is telling us about uh, what his life was like when he bought into that idea of self-justification through performance. And I want you to just listen to what he says. You don't have to turn to this passage. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen so you can read it, but just you can read it with me. Uh, he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, uh, he's saying to self-justify through performance. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to self-justify through performance, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, 
Let me say something. All of that doesn't mean much to you and me because we weren't born into the religious culture that Paul lived in. But what he's giving us here is the ultimate religious performance pedigree in his day. He was born into the right family, went to the right schools, lived in the right neighborhoods, won every scholarship award available, lived to obey the letter of the law. He was striving for perfection. In his mind, what does he say? He was faultless, he says. Now, now here's the turn. Here's the turn. Here's what all of this has to do with family. Let me ask you something. What would it be like to live with that guy? A guy who believes that you have to justify your worthiness. A guy who believes that the justification of his life, the proof of his worthiness as a human being of salvation is in his relentless pursuit of perfect, of perfect performance. How would you like to have that guy as a father? How would you like to be married to that guy? Do you think if that guy had kids, they'd ever get to sleep until noon on the weekend? Do you think he would ever accept anything other than A's on their report cards? You think he would ever be able to tell his wife, honey, you know, you're right, I was wrong. How much time do you think he would spend at work versus at home? How hard would he drive his kids? What would their extracurricular schedule look like? Because not only does he need them to justify his life by their performance, he has to teach them that they must justify their life by their performance. It would be exhausting to live with this man. But not only that, it would be deeply wounding to live with this man because relationships, well, they really don't mean anything to him. Only performance for the sake of self-justification. Now, does any of that sound familiar to any of you? Any of you think that you came from a family whose spiritual family tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In other words... A family that taught that you have to justify yourself through your performance. That you're not worth anything until you perform, until you prove it. Sound familiar to any of you? Any of you think maybe that the spiritual family tree you're passing down to your kids today is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That's one of the Spiritual family trees. And let's just be perfectly honest with you, with one another, that all of us come into the world with this as our spiritual family tree. Justification, self-justification through performance. And what we're going to do in the weeks ahead is that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna draw out what that looks like. What does it look like when you're a person whose spiritual family tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you are parenting your family, when you're married to your spouse, when you're relating to the people in your family on the basis of self-justification through performance, what does that look like? What does it manifest itself in? That's what we're going to be doing in the weeks ahead in this series. But that's just one of the spiritual family trees. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other is, and I'm going to close with this, the other is this. The other is uh, the cross. The cross. Now, it's the cross. You some of you are saying, wait, 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 wait. The cross, isn't, the cross isn't a tree. 
Well, interestingly, uh, in the New Testament, the cross is often referred to by the Greek word uh, ulan, uh, which means wood. For instance, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's the word ulan, wood. Now, that's just one of the places in the New Testament that the cross is referred to as a tree. And for those of you who are into grammar, that's a figure of speech called synecdoche where the whole of something is represented by the part. It's like when we refer to credit cards as plastic. Like, you ever, you ever say that? Like, you know, hey, you know I'm, I'm going to use plastic. Okay, that's synecdoche. That's synecdoche. Um, it's like when you refer to a car as wheels. Okay, it's the same thing. I said earlier that the Apostle Paul was converted through a supernatural vision of the Lord Jesus Christ on the road uh, to Damascus. Paul, before that, had been a budding theological scholar uh, in Judaism. But once he believed in Christ, he began to rethink all of his theology. And he realized that because the world had been turned upside down through man's declaration of autonomy, he realized it couldn't possibly be saved by man's autonomy. I mean, man's autonomy from God is what screwed everything up in the first place. It's what the Bible calls sin. Sin turned the world upside down. And as Paul reflected over all of this, Paul realized that the purpose of God throughout history had always been to save humanity, but not through human attempts at self-justification through performance, because that would be impossible. People who screwed up the world by their autonomy can't reclaim the world, can't fix the world by their same autonomy. And so Paul realized that God would redeem the world in a way that no human religion and that no human philosophy would ever come up with. And here's how he would do it. He realized that God himself, in the person of Jesus, would pay for our rebellion against him himself by dying on a Roman cross, dying on a tree. Paul realized that this was the only way. And so God did, in the person of Jesus, what we could never do for ourselves, He justified us because we could never self-justify through performance. And this realization completely changed Paul's approach to life. This man, remember, he once lived his entire life attempting to self-justify his existence, his, his worthiness through his performance. This man began to teach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was this, believe And you are saved. Because that's the only way that you could ever be justified. It's the only way that your life can ever be justified. Listen to me. It's the only way that your life will ever be justified is by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. And you are saved. And so this man, once so caught up in his pedigree and in his, his achievements and his religious performance, came to the point that he said this. And this would be a wonderful verse for you to memorize. He said this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To boast in something means that you gain glory from it, that you're somehow defined by it, that you gain your identity from it, that you are somehow justified, that your life is justified by it. Paul says, may I never boast except in, in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In another place, Paul refers to all of that stuff that I read to you from uh, uh, his pedigree earlier. 
He refers to all of that stuff in another place in Scripture as rubbish, worthless, he says. Why? Why why worthless? It's not that there's anything wrong with achievement, not that there's anything wrong with excellence or a great education or being born to a great family or living in a nice neighborhood or anything like that. It's not not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that if you're trying to use any of that to justify yourself, to prove your worthiness, to be saved from whatever it is that you need to be saved from, it is futile. He says it's futile. It's an empty, it's a hollow, it's a deceptive philosophy. It's a deceptive idea about how to live and about how to prove your worthiness. He says it's rubbish. Only the cross can justify you, validate you, make you worthy. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you just, let me ask you this. Last thing. What would a man or a woman who says that the only thing I boast in, the only thing that justifies my life is the cross, what would he or she be like to live with? How would he or how would she treat their family? How would they handle conflict? I wonder what their schedule would look like. I wonder where they would spend most of their time. I wonder how important relationships would be to them. I wonder if they could ever say, Honey, I'm wrong. You're right. Well, that also is what we're going to be working out throughout the rest of this series. What it looks like when your spiritual family tree becomes the cross instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have this saying here. You'll hear Dustin say it again in a few moments. It is saying that the cross changes everything. You'll see in this series that if your spiritual family tree is the cross, if you boast in the cross and not in your performance, it will make an enormous difference in the way that you do family. And maybe the thing for you to begin thinking about this week is what is your spiritual family tree? Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Uh, Our Lord Jesus Christ, I confess that I boast in things other than the cross. But Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would turn me into a man that would never boast in anything except the cross. Because it is only the cross that justifies me. And Lord, make make that true of us as a church. And Lord, as we go about now beginning to assess and analyze our own lives, and whether we're boasting in uh, performance, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if that's our spiritual family tree, or if we're boasting in the cross, if that's our spiritual family tree, Lord, begin to show us those things. Begin to show us what the difference is, uh, would look like if we began to boast only in the cross of Christ. Lord, we thank you for family. We understand the importance of family uh, to a civilized society. And we want to be people who do family in a uniquely distinctive Christian way because of what you've done for us on the cross. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship today and pray. 